Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good morning, everyone. My name is Tamika Moss, and I am the founder and CEO of All Home. We're a Bay Area organization that advances regional solutions to disrupt the cycle of poverty and homelessness and create more opportunities for uh, folks with extremely low incomes in our region. I'm so pleased to be the moderator for both components of the program today. We're going to start things off today with my friend and colleague, Michael Tubbs. Michael, as you all may know, is the former mayor of Stockton, California, where he made headlines around the country for introducing a guaranteed income pilot there, which at that time seemed like a radical idea when it was first when it was the first of its kind in the country. But believe it or not, that was only a few years ago. Michael now wears many hats including the founder of End Poverty in California, uh, EPIC, a new effort focused on elevating the voices of people experiencing poverty, um, as well as implementing bold policy ideas rooted in their needs and advancing a statewide agenda on this issue. Michael is also the uh, founder and executive chairman of the Mayors for Guaranteed Income, as well as a special advisor to Governor Newsom on economic mobility and opportunity. Michael, welcome back to the Commonwealth Club. I'm so happy to be with you today. Thank you so much. You forgot the most important title, at least for this conversation, president of the Tamika Moss Fan Club. Oh, stop. (laughs) Well, it is so mutual, my friend. Um, So we're going to speak about a half an hour. And then as as Ruby talked about, we're going to have an incredible panel discussion with some of our Bay Area leaders to drill into some of these ideas that we're talking about at the regional level. But before we jump in, I just want to remind those who are watching, uh, if you have questions for Michael or myself, please put them in the YouTube chat box and they'll be forwarded to me during our discussion. So, Michael, let's jump in. Tell us a little bit about EPIC and the five pillars included in your blueprint to end poverty in California. Yeah, End Poverty in, in California is an organization really rooted sort of not just in the lived experience of growing up in poverty, but also the governing experience of governing a community ravaged by poverty. And the idea is that sort of to end poverty in California, which is not radical, it's actually doable, um, a couple of things need to happen. Uh, number one, there has to be a clear policy agenda that illustrates sort of the policy choices we're making that perpetuate poverty. Um, and number two, that there has to be a narrative shift. There has to be a different conversation about how we think about poverty and how we talk about those who, who are in poverty. Um, and to that end, in February, we released a white paper that didn't say anything new, but just really illustrated the ways in which we can end poverty. And some of the pillars were, number one, a safety net that centers dignity, but it also gets money to people. Right? We have all this money allocated at the state level for rental assistance for food, and not all of it gets to the people who need it, which helps sustains and perpetuates poverty. Um, number two, quality jobs and, and worker power. That, that unions, that collective bargaining, that, that jobs that pay a living wage are a key to any anti-poverty uh, agenda. Um, number three, wealth credit opportunities for all. And the HOPE Act, this baby bonds bill um, passing through the legislature now is a good example of that. But the idea is that it's not enough for people just to have a hand-to-mouth meager existence that given the amount of wealth, a $90 trillion surplus or billion dollar surplus we have in this state, that everyone deserves the opportunity for a nest egg for something that doesn't have to be spent today, but can be passed down to the next generation, which is what wealth is. 
shared safety and second chances. We know, and you know this in your work, that so much of the poverty, so much of the homelessness, so much of many of the issues we face in the state are because we don't allow people an on-ramp to opportunity after they've served their time. And we also have a very punitive system, including collecting fines and fees for the perpetuate poverty. And lastly, housing as a human right. That, that what we see, and again, your work is a great example of this, but what we see in, with people creating shelters on the streets or in the crosstowns or on um, near people's favorite places to walk is that folks have a, this innate need for shelter, that, that folks have to live somewhere. And if we don't have enough affordable housing and we don't have enough supportive housing, then folks will continue to, to do the things that we're seeing happening um, in, 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 our, in our cities throughout the state today. I so appreciate that holistic view. Part of the reason that I started All Home was to try to connect the dots between poverty and homelessness, right? Like we talk about homelessness as if it's an isolated issue in the state of California, but it really is uh, what happens when systemic poverty meets widespread lack of affordable housing. And the history of this country and our housing policies have set folks up, set people, particularly people of color up, uh, to fall on both counts. How does housing and homelessness fit into your work? And how do you see those connections between housing, poverty, and racial justice? Yeah, well, we know, and again, your your work is a testament to this. We know that California, the golden state, the side of the resistance, the most progressive state, has the highest poverty rate in this country because we have the highest cost of housing in this country, because we have the highest amount of people that are rent poor in this country, because folks can't afford housing in California because, and I didn't know this until a couple months ago, we're one of the few states in this country where the public can 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 veto government housing. And uh, that's what I'm looking forward to. I think it's an article or section 24 of the of the constitution being repealed in, in, in the state. So we're able to build um, the, the housing that 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 people need. And, and we know that our housing crisis has been created in part because of systemic racism and discriminatory housing practices. We 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 know that you can't end poverty if people don't have housing. We 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 know that that the and we also know, and this is what gets me, this is what animates me, this is why I'm talking so fast, it's because we spend so much money on the issue anyway. Like we spend so much money on everything but but what works. Yeah. <laughs> just, which is not just housing people, but allowing people to build housing. We have to have more affordable units. And affordable housing just me I said about the time with this when I was mayor. I was like, when I say affordable housing, I mean housing that you and your neighbors can afford. That everyone should have something that they can afford in the communities they live, they pay taxes in, and they grow their families in. And and that is, so housing in California is not just the key to ending poverty, but also a driver for creating wealth. That, 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 That both those things are linked. And we know that particularly for people of color in this country, there's been policies, books, loans denied, Neighborhoods redlined that have created these conditions, and that's why government has to meet and has to rectify those mistakes. So we have a state that that mirrors what we profess to be in terms of being a golden state with opportunity for everyone. Absolutely. Um, you know, it feels so clear to me that moving toward a just and equitable society requires 
progress on a number of issues, right? As you, as you talked about in the five pillars. Um, can you describe maybe some of the specifics? You mentioned the baby bonds legislation that you're working on, how making progress on any of the pillars that you describe can drive progress across others. Like we talk often about the, the sort of intersectional nature of what in fact communities and people need to thrive in their communities. What are some of those intersections in your mind? Um, I'm going to answer your question by not answering it, but then I'm going to come around <laughs> and answer it. But I remember when I was on city council, we were doing like collective impact strategy around poverty in South Stockton. And I was really, because I have my master's in education policy. So I was really driving the education, education, education. And and housing, I mean, I was between two years old. I didn't even have a house. So housing wasn't top of mind. Right. But two housing experts, Carol Ornalis of Visionary Home Builders and Fred Schill from Stan set me down, took me to lunch for an hour and a half, and really broke it down for me about how sort of shelter housing is foundational and intersects with all those other things. I think to answer your question, if we look at the issue of homelessness and and, and who's homeless, many of the folks who are unhoused are are folks who are leaving our prison system. 50% of the folks who are unhoused or some high number like that are folks who have exited our foster care system. And there's clear intersections between sort of the poverty of the foster care system, the poverty of those who are um, formerly incarcerated, the barriers to housing that precipitate this issue of, of homelessness that, that we have to address. And we also know in terms of wealth building that many people's countries in this country, in the state's wealth, are built off their home ownership. We know that Prop 13, there was just an article in the Census Chronicle about how Prop 13 in particular have really made folks who are able to buy houses um, under Prop 13 rates, incredibly wealthy because their property tax has been remained low, their home value has gone high, while at the same time, a whole bunch of folks, not just the the younger generation, but folks of that generation were locked out from the access to to, to own that asset, to own that collateral that then blossoms and grows. So particularly in the conversation around poverty, and we also know the data around housing and health outcomes. We also know the data between housing and education outcomes. We also know the data between sort of having a stable place to live, a safe neighborhood to live, and a child's life expectancy, a, a, a child's earning potential, a, a child's educational attainment. So they all intersect and all roads lead to housing, lead to shelter, lead to stability, lead to sort of having a place to lay one's head, to be safe and secure, um, to, 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 to not have cortisol levels through the roof, to not be anxious and, and, and living in, in, in fear all, all the time. Yeah, I think it's, it's hard to remember <laughs> how traumatizing it is to to be housing insecure or unhoused. I think it's it's easy to kind of see the person in front of you and wonder what they did. But the fact of the matter is, these are systemic barriers that you're talking about. And, you know, in your in your opening, as you talked about housing as a human right, it is a human necessity. No one can function well without having a stable place to live. So I really appreciate you lifting that up and, and helping our audience sort of connect the dots there. And I mean, we all learn about Maslow's hierarchy in, 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 okay. in, in school. Like, like we learn this in like fourth grade, right? And it's like, we can't get to self-actualization 
without these other basic needs being met. And housing is foundational to that. Like, like we, 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 <laughs> we have to, like, it, it's just so wild because even the most grotesque, brutal, dehumanizing evil of human trafficking in this country provided shelter. Mm. Like, think about that. Like, even these inhumane slave owners who saw these people as subhuman, who raped them, who sold them, who beat them, humiliated them. Had they had there was there was like little shelter there like 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 so right. it's so bizarre anyway. Well, we've had one comment from the from the audience that that really appreciated your point on more deeply affordable housing and homes that meet all of our residents' needs uh, because we have to have sustainable economic development. There's so many people that are left behind um, when incomes have remained stagnant or declined. And housing costs have skyrocketed. Yeah, absolutely. And I've been, I'm not an expert yet, but I have begun reading, and I'm sure you know this again better than me, about some of the social housing models in Europe and how sort of there's like all types of housing. So you can own your house. So I'm, I'm, I've been trying to really under, wrap my American brain <laughs> around that because it seems like too good to be true almost. Like, wait, people, but I, if the alternative is not to have housing, then yes. People are cool with living in the house that, that the government owns, as long as they, if, if, they, if there's nothing else that that's affordable or it's not that type of sort of financial roots or commitment they want to make. So, um, I'm not even sure if I'm answering the, the question or being responsive to the comment, but I, I, I do think part of it, and you mentioned this, is we have to just break what like we don't have a we don't have a model for what this looks like. So we have to that's really right. break away from our paradigms and our understanding. And look throughout like the world in terms of okay, how are other people dealing with issues? Because we're not the only people that need to be housed. So how are mm-hmm. other countries housing their folks and what does it look like and what's applicable, what's not? And, and nothing's perfect, but we know what we see in this country and in this state is actually unacceptable. That's right. So let's talk a little bit about how partnerships and collaboration play into this, right? Both of our organizations rely on partners and alignment and coordination of these big ideas. And frankly, they're not that big. They're just uh, humane, rational ideas. Um, And, you know, it's almost like, how do we bring folks into the fold? What are some of the ways that you see cross-sector partnerships playing out in meaningful ways in in our communities? Yeah, well, I think in... um... Examples aren't perfect, but they're, 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 they're at least for someone to respond to. Where now you have, and we can talk about displacement justification, but at least now you have tech companies talking about jobs housing balance and talking yeah. about like we're going to build all these office space. We probably need to build some housing. <laughs> we probably need to make sure folks have somewhere to live. And we should we need to talk about displacement. What happens with the folks are already there? But I think sort of the private sector has a huge role to play, particularly because political actors are so afraid of voters and companies. So having those folks part of the conversation, like, no, we need housing is so incredibly important. Um, And then I think number two, the media and cultural makers and artists have a big role to play. Because I think part of it is getting folks to see that an affordable house built next to your house doesn't create loss for you. And in fact, it's a net benefit. And in fact, it's actually better for your long-term prospects. 
um, as a member of this community, the more folks you have in your community that are housed, no matter how much the housing costs. Um, and we need sort of like cultural, like folks outside of rebel politics can help see that idea and get people the imagination and the shared understanding that no, actually we want people housed. And I think the work you're doing is so important. And that's what we need like good folks in, in civil society and, and leaders like you all, like you and your organization to really get people to see that homelessness has to do with homes. It's in the name. So, so any strategy to combat homelessness has to include homes, <laughs> has to include housing. And because to your point, and I know this from spending eight years in local government, homelessness is seen as some like, like these hundreds of thousands of people across the country don't want to be housed. Right. It's like, no, hundred. We don't want to house these hundred thousands of people. And that's the, so I think sort of that work and being persistent and pushing and letting people to see like, no, because I think we're at the point now where it feels so big and it's so like, and I was just driving down, um, I think by the Beverly center in Los mm-hmm. Angeles and just lot encampments and tents on like streets, not even in, like on streets. And, I, and I'm like, I can see people seem like getting angry and overwhelmed, but no, 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 the problem's getting worse, not because it's not solvable, but because we haven't solved it, right? Like, so, so it's not gonna be easy, but there's Thanks. things we can do. Awesome. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. And, you know, I'm such a huge fan of your work and I know you're hella busy right now. So thanks for uh, for spending this half hour with our, our audience. I no, well, first of all, I know y'all know how bad Tamika is. Thank you. You spent time in City Hall working on hard issues. Then you say, you know what? I'm going to spend all my time working on the hardest issues. <laughs> so salute to you and thank you for your hire, your leadership. We need you. <laughs> I appreciate it. All right. So now I'm pleased to trans- transition to the second part of our program today, which is a panel discussion uh, with our Bay Area leaders to dig into some of the uh, issues that Michael and I just discussed. So I'll do some quick introductions and then get our conversation started. Uh, Kathy Eberhardt is the vice chair of the mayor of Oakland's Commission on Persons with Disabilities. She's also the leader of EBHO, the East Bay Housing Organization's resident community organizing program, as well as a resident leader at Ebalzi. Next, we have Courtney Welch, who is a native of Oakland and was elected to the Emeryville City Council in November 2021. Uh, She is the Director of Planning and Investigations at CARLA, which is California Rental Renters Legal Advocacy and Education Fund, as well as serves as the chair to the Alameda County Housing and Community Development Advisory Board. And finally, Melissa Jones, who's the executive director of Bar High, which is the Coalition of Bay Area Governmental Public Health Departments. Uh, They were founded to really address the issues that impact health outside of the doctor's office and has been the region's primary force for understanding the connections between housing affordability and health. So as we get started, I just wanted to situate us in this conversation. So the Bay Area is uniquely uh, situated in terms of poverty, racial inequality, and homelessness. Uh, You know, we have the nine-county Bay Area region. There are more than 100 cities, and many of our communities are trying to solve this problem. Um, But it's really difficult to figure out how we solve it as as a region. Uh, We know that there are more than 
one million uh, people in our region who have extremely low incomes. Uh, those folks who have a, who are earning about thirty five thousand dollars a year for a household of three, and really are just an emergency away from uh, experiencing a housing crisis or homelessness in our region. Um, we had a study done with some of our research partners that uh, looked at the incomes for extremely low-income households, and it's just about $17,000 a year. Uh, and we know that housing costs are 10 times that. So how vulnerable so many of our neighbors are in our community um, is really why we're having this conversation today. So I wonder if I could just open up the conversation for each of you to answer, what are some unique opportunities uh, that the Bay Area has to advance our work on addressing homelessness and, and poverty in the region? And maybe, uh, Courtney, why don't we start with you and each of you can... Uh, can can answer that first question for sure thank you just wanted to say hello to everyone um to me because that was so hard listening to you and michael the discussion i wanted to hop in you know we were listening kind of in the in the virtual green room it was hard not to hop in and want to say something but i think for us here in the bay area um one of the the unique opportunities is the advancement around research around policy and poverty and homelessness and how it feels, at, at least from my point of view, it feels as if we're making a shift, especially around um, state involvement with um, investment around uh, things like um, homelessness and, and housing opportunities and development opportunities and seeing more and more both on the smaller scale nonprofits and larger foundations um, really coming together and forming coalitions to address um, this really policy failure of, of all of us to address um, poverty, which has gone on now for decades. And I think we've reached a, a boiling point and now it's, it's really our make or break moment. But what I really see is um, those coalitions that are being built through foundations and nonprofits and also government agencies, all of them coming together and really deciding, okay, this is our moment to really stand up and move forward and seeing how successful so many of those coalitions have been. I love that. It's, and it, it feels like that's really, uh, happen more during during the pandemic, which has been really exciting to see. Um, Melissa, what are, you, what are some opportunities that you're seeing? One of the opportunities that's really struck us is this, this massive wave of investment that's available. And so we see, you know, a record-setting state surplus, um, just much higher than anyone had anticipated. And it's, it's occurring at the same time as a massive amount of once-in-a-generation federal investment. And so we're seeing um, resources flow through the bipartisan infrastructure package that was passed that really puts a lot of money on the table to start with solutions. And I think what's, um, what's amazing, um, when Courtney mentioned about um, the, the Bay Area, is that we have a lot of coalitions in place and a lot of research and a lot of knowledge about what the solutions are. So we're really, we're not, we're not grabbing in the dark um, the, the solution for us now is to focus those investments on the things we know matter most, to work with coalitions um, and government, government um, infrastructure to really implement the solutions that are mattering most. And we have really good structures in place to do that kind of learning together. I mean, I think that's, um, 
that's one of the big lessons over the last handful of years is that we really can spread quickly information across our nine county Bay Area about what's working and get it implemented fast. And I think that that's, that's the next step and solution for us. Absolutely. Kathy, what about you? What opportunities are you seeing that we can take advantage of in this moment? Well, well, being a person with lived experience of being homeless, homeless, I feel that be, coming together as a community and organizing and campaigning to get the, the things that we have faced during our time of homelessness to push policies and change within within the, the city government and in the uh, in the area, I feel that there's so many things that uh, I have learned to be in on different committees. Um, that a lot of us with the lived experience have faced so much challenge. We can come together, lay them all on the table, and then basically advocate and fight for change. Then there, there needs to be change. There needs to be more affordable housing built versus the market rate housing. We need to make a stand to, to ensure that there's money that is put out there to, to build affordable housing. There needs to be policies changed in, in order to get people into the housing. There needs to be outreach to the communities, I think we need to come together and organize and make the changes that we see are needed and that we have gone through with people with lived experiences and make that change. Kathy, I'm so appreciating what you're saying because I think as Melissa said, we don't have to wonder about the solutions. If we just listen to the people who first have the experience, but also work in collaboration and uh, coalition with each other, we can really move the needle. So thank you for that. We have a question from the audience that I might might start with you, Courtney, uh, which is what's an intriguing or innovative policy at the local government level that you might that you think is promising? What's what's happening in Emeryville or any other community across the region that you think uh, has some promise? Well, not specifically here in Emeryville, but um, to give honor to Michael and his work, the universal basic income um, initiatives that are coming up all across the state, I think, um, truly have an opportunity to address poverty head on. Um, at the end of the day, people know how to spend their money and people know what their families need. People don't need, and not to offend anyone or any organizations that do this work, it's not about financial education or teaching folks how to budget. People just need more money. <laughs> That's at the end of the day, I can't budget my way out of poverty. I can't financially educate myself out of poverty. At the end of the day, people just do not have enough money to make ends meet. So if you give them the money to do what they need to do, people know what they need to do with their for their families, for themselves. We've got that all that research as well. We've seen what people spend their stipends on when they're um, involved or participating in these type of initiatives. It's always bills, groceries, if their parents stuff for their kids, folks have been able to do much larger shifts for their lives, such as one woman I know specifically that participated in, in Michael's um, 
pilot program in Stockton said because she was able to send her child full-time to daycare with the additional funds she was getting, she was able to then work full-time and actually get a promotion because she had then had the availability to be been promoted into this new role. So this has the power to honestly shift lives. So I'm really excited to see um, how much uh, the universal basic income initiatives expand throughout the state and the nation. I love that. How about we give people money um, and let them figure out how to sustain uh, their lives? How about that concept? Melissa, tell us a little bit about Bar High's work and how you all are addressing the social inequities in, in, the, in the region, specifically your experience convening stakeholders uh, that don't just focus on one policy area or the other. Yeah, thank you. So... Bar High was founded with, with the idea and the knowledge that 80% of what's mattering for our health is happening outside the doctor's office. It's happening in the community conditions we find ourselves in. And we did a retreat, I want to say now, six years ago with the health departments of the Bay Area. And we asked, what is the fundamental issue shaping health equity right now? Shaping our ability to close differences we see in life expectancy and disease burden. Um, and this was before COVID. Um, and um, they said, hands down, without a doubt, it's housing affordability. It's changing who lives here. It's changing where people live. It's changing um, the decisions that they have. And so we worked with um, the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco to really take a look at what that looked across the whole looked like across the whole nine county Bay Area. Um, and what we saw is that families who were able to comfortably afford their rent or their mortgage were able to spend a third more on food and five times more on medical care. So that means rather than having to wait to the tax refund period to get your ongoing um, medicines, not having to cut pills in half, um, doing the kinds of things um, that people have to do in a budget squeeze um, to, to hold on to housing um, goes away when people can comfortably afford housing. And we've seen that play out too in a real racial disparity in the Bay Area. And so what we see is really high overrepresentation of African Americans in, in homelessness um, and in displacement. And we see displacement happening in, in two, two patterns. We see people moving for more affordable rentals and people moving for affordable first-time home ownership. We think all of that is connected, right? That we're all connected in family units where we're feeling these housing pressures. Um, and that the more the region invests in affordable housing, it helps the, it helps the whole so that we don't see a 66% loss of Black population like we've seen in East Palo Alto or between 40 and 50% in Oakland, in um, San Francisco, in Berkeley. I mean, these numbers are huge and they're massive. And we think, um, in fact, one of the things we've been doing is pulling together partners from all different parts of the Bay Area to think about solutions um, for those issues. And so we're finding, in particular, housing developers, housing finance folks, people who understand health, people who understand community planning and design, um, have all been working with us to work on a Black housing fund that I can share a little bit more about later. But I think those kinds of organized solutions are, are really helpful. So let me shift us to a question about race, because part of our conversation in this discussion today is the, the relationship of race on homelessness and, and poverty. Why is it so important to have explicit anti-racist policies and programs that address the needs of our 
Black, Brown, and Indigenous uh, brothers and sisters in community? And I, I'd love all of you to uh, to answer that question. Kathy, maybe you can start us off. Yes, you know, going back a, a long, a long time, there has been a lot of discriminatory policies made through banks and um, uh, c- uh, companies and things to hold the people of color from even owning um, property and stuff, like redlining, like redlining. It's important that we get out of the prejudicial ways of ourselves and see everyone as equal and start bringing people of color to the level that the white population has had a priority and benefits all of this all of this time. I don't know how to say it any nicer or cleaner or anything like that, but it's time to stop and treat everyone as equal and bring people to and bring all races to to an equal level, to an equal level. It's so true that the majority of the population that are homeless are people of color. It's beyond numbers that is higher than that. And it's even had gotten to the point that the people that have grown up, their families in Oakland are now homeless based on policies, bank issues, bank uh, policies to um, to get rid of the people of color from the neighborhoods, along with them bringing in uh, people from other areas to come and take over uh, Oakland. We we need to we need to put things at an equal level. We we need to stop it on this on this. Um, this by this prejudice part of what has been going on with people of color all this time. There needs to be a stop to it. We, there needs to, we all need to rise. Kathy really hit the nail on the head. And, you know, I'm a big believer in the way out is the way back through. From the beginning, like, exclusionary policy is was at the foundation of housing policy. And that's just a fact. And we know that. And I feel as if it's it's a poison route. Mm-hmm. And granted, times have changed and we've made a shift. But when you're working in that default space of exclusionary racist policy, you have to have purposeful anti-racist policy to enact that. You have to go back through and say, okay, we were doing this. So then the solution is to be anti that. And that's, if we're working with the foundation was racist policies and housing, then we need to have anti-racist housing policy 
to to neutralize that because even as you move forward and times have changed and I use that loosely because really it's just that it's not okay to be openly racist and discriminatory we still see how the ripple effect is still going on today with black homes being devalued at 156 billion dollars we see how redlining has had the effect on commercial investment, school investment, health outcomes of the folks who lived in those areas. So, and this is today, we're talking about 2022, how long has redlining been deemed illegal? But the impact was still there. So it's like, okay, well, we stopped doing that, but you didn't go back through and address the impact of that policy. So the impact is still there, even though the policy is still no longer legal. So that's why it's important because we have to address the ripple effect. We have to address the impact if we truly want an equitable housing system. So I completely agree. I think the the, the issue that we're finding ourselves in is that when we fail to protect affordability in the market, um, it has differential effects for us all. And it's because even for policies that are no longer in place, the residue remains. Um, I really think, I really agree with that. And I think, so this is a country that has never had reparations for slavery, which means there's a whole seg segment of the population that not only is, um, is sort of behind um, in terms of generational wealth transfer from that initial, um, that initial loss, um, but then we had, um, as people have mentioned, redlining that really depleted values in homes and in progress that people had made, um, and then targeting for subprime mortgages after that. Um, and in fact, we've never seen um, an equitable recovery from that 2008, 2007, 2008 um, housing crisis. And there's a really great um, new book out by Andre Perry of Brookings who um, put out Know Your Worth that shows um, so much of the, um, the research and, and particularly um, the housing-related issues around wealth loss um, that Courtney's mentioned that I think really shows, shows how that all plays out. And so what ends up happening, I think, is it plays out in families and it plays out in systems. And so in families, it means we're paying more money to support a range of family members when they end up in a crisis because we just don't have the, um, the depth of savings that other communities would have because there's been massive wealth transfers one generation after another, but um, in particular, Black families have been locked out of. Um, and then the other thing that we see is that without even trying, our systems can discriminate. There was a great article maybe a week ago, um, maybe not even that long in the New York Times that was about a tool that's being used um, to prioritize um, services in the homeless system. Um, and the lessons that have been learned about when that tool um, has actually uh, propagated uh, racism um, and the actual or the people who had written the tool saying they no longer support it. And I think that's the kind of thing we have to look out for, that um, it can be so baked in at this point that we just end up in situations where we're perpetuating inequities without meaning to. And so we have to look across each part of our model, each way that we do an intake each way that we deliver a service to figure out where along the way we're actually doing a disservice by race. Um, and that's a big body of work, but one that this region is really capable of because of who's here, because we've been working together a long time, um, and because there are really strong coalitions of people who have used the services over time who can give us good feedback. Absolutely.
I love everyone's response to that question, especially the fact that, you know, we hear so often what I thought we were done with this <laughs> and, and hearing the sort of residual and ripple effect that you all are describing, I think gives our audience some context for why it's important to continue to, to focus on not just lifting up how racialized these policies are, but then being intentional about dismantling um, the the impacts of those policies, given that they were designed to be racist. So Courtney, I really appreciated that, that frame. Um, there's a question from the audience um, that asks, how can we create spaces that disrupt the NIMBY framework, which puts middle-income property owners against low-income uh, folks you know, we often talk about we need housing at every income level to really solve uh, our housing crisis, but but prioritization of those who are unhoused and precariously housed should be our priority. How do we um, sort of shift that paradigm of this either or and who's really at fault where we actually need housing at all the levels and I'm curious if folks have a, a thought about that question. To actually add to something Kathy had mentioned earlier, um, you know, it does take a lot of organizing. What I think a lot of folks who are specifically afraid about affordable housing, there are very false, harmful narratives about like who lives in multifamily housing, who lives in affordable housing, and these stereotypes around folks who may have lower incomes and what does that do to a neighborhood and what does that do to that neighborhood's character? And so um, a lot of it is noise. I, I have to say a lot of it is simply noise where you can't play into just irrelevant stereotypes. People think lower income folks are going to bring crime into a neighborhood. We just, we know that's not true. We know that's just that harmful narrative that people want to use because at the end of the day, people don't want newer or sometimes poorer people in their neighborhood. They don't want to share space. So really it does go back to organizing, making sure that folks who are pro-housing, pro-housing across all income levels are getting involved and making sure that we are advocating to our leadership, advocating for funding and, and appropriations for different funding sources to make sure that affordable housing can get built, that um, there's housing being allocated to folks who are extremely vulnerable, like folks experiencing homelessness, who are chronically disabled or struggling with uh, substance abuse and recovery. Everyone deserves a home at the end of the day. And you not wanting someone, uh, an apartment next to your McMansion is really not uh, a concern. It's it's not fair and it's not going to solve the biggest issue. To Michael's point earlier, folks will hate the problem of homelessness, but they don't want to bring more housing available into the area to help solve it. So either you're going to keep having homelessness, which apparently you don't like and, you know, don't want to see, or we're going right. to have homes. And sometimes it's just the people who are just making the noise. You just have to ignore them and you can out-organize them at, at, at any time because a lot of times it's just noise and they're just here to complain. I love that. Kathy or Melissa, anything on that question? 
No, I just want to say Courtney hit it right on the head. She she hit the hit it right on the head. I just want to say I agree with her hundred percent. Uh, Kathy, I just wanted to um, direct the next question to you. You know, you have um, been so involved in your community around these issues. Talk to us about how you became the vice chair of the Oakland Mayor's Commission on Persons with Disabilities and why you think that work is so important uh, to, to what we're discuss- discussing today. Okay, like I said, um, I was homeless and I'm permanently disabled. And I, I just have to put it out there. I require medicine that has to be refrigerated. So being homeless, having medication that needs to be refrigerated, trying to find affordable housing because now I'm on a fixed income, and the struggles and the environments that I had to be in was more of a health hazard to me than my disability itself. I felt, I honestly feel that there should be preferences to people with disabilities when it's coming, when it's, when you're going up against trying to find affordable housing. I have to tell you, I am not a person of the lottery system either. But to get back to the um, why I, be, I got on the Mayor's Commission for Persons with Disabilities, because of the situations that I was faced with while I was homeless, I said no. I said I need to get involved in the community. In, in fact, my whole experience of being homeless said, made me say no. I need to get into the community. Get in, to uh, the community and make change. I made that a, a, a goal of mine once I found affordable housing, which I did not find through the lottery process either. But um, I just felt that I want to fight for the people who are disabled. I want to fight for the people who are homeless. I want. I don't want them to have to go through the same struggles that I did when I was homeless. And I made a vow to myself to to give back to the community and do whatever I could to make the changes so no one would have to suffer the way that I did. And then on top of that, I'm a senior. So I I, I just want, I wanted to give back. It's all important to me because I'm everything within itself. I'm disabled, I'm old, I was homeless, I'm a a senior. I, I just want to make a change. That is what my goal is, to make a change. Well, you are doing it, Kathy. I'm so honored to be in partnership with you on the work, I must say. Um, Melissa, you talked a bit earlier about some of the work you've been doing to organize Black folks across the spectrum of, of uh, policy areas to advance an agenda. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, um, so I, we're part of um, uh, Black Hat, the Black Housing Advisory Task Force. Started with uh, founding 40 number of Black-led organizations, taking a look at what we're seeing um, related to, to homelessness, to housing affordability, to people moving for their first homes, and to the massive displacement we've seen in the Bay Area that I talked about earlier. And we said, you know, this is a moment of unprecedented investment. What can we do right now to really see a shift 
in the losses that we're seeing all across the Bay Area um, of Black population and of the incredible um, heaviness and growth we've seen um, in Black homelessness. And so we, we put together a plan, starting with that founding 40, of a, a $500 million state-funded house, Black housing fund that could do what community development has wanted to do for a long time, but never has the money all at one time, which is to start with um, community planning um, and fund community capacity building and fund brick and mortar development all at the same time. So it's not that you do community planning about what a community needs, raise everybody's hopes and hope that somebody somewhere is going to give you the money to implement, right? That um, we can go right from what's the community plan that's going to be the most impactful um, for Black residents across the Bay into supporting Black-led organizations to do the hiring they need to make it happen, um, into um, the building of um, housing that really meets the needs that we are seeing all across the spectrum, like people are just talking about. So it's it's picked up as a California Black Legislative Caucus priority. It's championed by a, a assembly person, Lori Wilson, from here in the Bay Area, um, and it's we're, we're doing a big push at, to see it as a budget item this year um, to really kickstart uh, solutions uh, for the Bay Area. So we're encouraging people to to have conversations about it with their 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 neighbors, with um, their assembly people um, and really help us move it through this last phase. And Courtney, Carla, tell us about that important work. What's uh, what are you all doing relative to this this issue? We are um, doing our part to address the housing crisis um, through holding cities accountable to be in compliance with state law. So we're a nonprofit and we monitor housing, um, both state and local housing policy and changes in development throughout the state. And a lot of my work as the director of planning and investigations comes from when residents actually reach out to us um, when cities and counties have broken the state law or put up illegal barriers to housing development. But we also proactively monitor the housing throughout the state and also housing developing permitting, the, that, the permitting process as well. So for me, mainly what I do in my role, it's the monitoring, the intake and investigations and the research and education piece alongside the director of development and outreach. So for the monitoring piece, we review statewide city council and planning commission agendas, um, and we really focus on the areas that have the highest like housing shortage, well known for segregation and high levels of inequity and inequality when it comes to housing. And so we'll review the agenda, um, keep an eye on any items that could potentially have some funny business around compliance. Um, sometimes, especially with like SB9 or ADU permitting, they some jurisdictions put up kind of very strange barriers to either gum up the works or completely shut down the process. Um, also for the intake and investigations piece, like I mentioned earlier, I'm the first point of contact for parties that reach out that either have questions about how their jurisdiction is complying with state law, um, or they'll ask for assistance regarding their own projects that have been um, stalled illegally. 
Um, and we also do like analyze and see if what they're actually um, reaching out to us for is covered by state law. We also check like the local zoning ordinance to see if there's any potential issues or barriers there, also the specific and general plans. Mm -hmm. And then as far as the research and education piece, I work with our development of, uh, develop, director of development and outreach to plan educational events and develop materials that we can provide to individuals, government agencies and developers, just so they're more familiar and understanding around state housing law. I love that. That accountability piece is so critically important in, in how we're addressing this issue. Definitely, especially since multiple jurisdictions have made it clear that they are not interested in being in compliance with how the state housing law. They have made it clear that they're not interested in addressing our housing shortage by allowing more housing to be developed in their areas. So um, it's it's very much um, a, a well-needed practice, and I'm happy to be a part of an organization that is um, keeping an eye on things across the state. All right. We had another good question that came in um, from the audience. Um, how can we best counter the narrative that homelessness is caused by mental illness and substance use versus the reality that it diverts us from talking about the structural racism and uh, housing cost factors that are actually driving the increase in homelessness. I'd love to hear folks' thoughts about that question because we get it all the time at All Home. Kathy, why don't you start us off? You know what? Everybody needs to sit back and remember anything can happen. Your life can change in a matter of a second. When I became disabled, it happened Literally overnight, I had good jobs, had good high-paying jobs and everything, and then I literally became disabled overnight. Yes. Again, I'm going back to getting involved in the community so we can get the word out so that we can bring awareness to everybody. Everybody out there that, that are homeless is not on drugs, nor are they are they do they have a mental disability either. Some people has had health issues that have brought them out of situations, or people who whose places have burned down, or you know, I I just hate to hear I just hate to hear that whole thing about that. What we need to do is we need to be, again, I'm saying that I'm an avid person of doing organizing and advocating for rights and and things like that. We need to become, get involved in the community and we need to fight things with power. But no, that is definitely not the case. Everybody that's homeless is not on drugs and do not have a, a mental disability. You know, some do, but, but, that is not like that. Be careful from what people think and say, because your life can change in a matter of a second, too. Absolutely. Melissa yes. and Courtney, I know you all hear this as well. What, how, do we, how do we address that trope? Thank you for saying that, Kathy. I mean, I think we're all deeply human. Um, and so uh, housing, as you said at the beginning, is, is just such a necessity. Um, and we all need it. Um, and 
I think that, you know, this region is, is not um, working the market in such a way that there's enough affordability for everyone and we need to fix that. Um, and I think we need to fix um, half-truths in, in how we understand why people are homeless and get to the structural issues. And I think um, we have to understand that particularly for substance use um, and for mental health, the level of trauma um, that people are surviving every day in our community is so high. Um, and um, surviving that trauma and then trying to find your way out of it and ending up in substance abuse doesn't mean um, that you don't deserve to have a place to live that can help you get well. Um, and I think that that's the other piece that we have to um, push ourselves on as a society. Any thoughts, Courtney? Or Oh, absolutely. I mean, echoing what Kathy said, even having my own experience with housing insecurity, I think there people do not hear enough from folks who have actually experienced homelessness to actually hear what led to them experiencing housing insecurity or homelessness. With me, it was an owner move-in eviction, which is legal but disruptive. I was working part-time, about to go back to work, because my son was going to go into daycare, and I was making a good part-time salary, but then going out into this very just high-cost rental world, I didn't have what it took to afford what they were looking for as far as applicants, you know, making three times the amount like, okay, I'm making what I can afford here. I can afford my, at that time, $1,100 rent. But if I need to make $7,000 to afford this $3,000 studio, no, I'm not making that right now. So I'm working part-time. So it's just, people are very much not aware of all of the cracks in all of our policies and all of the cracks in societies where people can slip through. And I thought about, especially in this similar to Kathy's story, what motivated me to get involved in housing advocacy was I thought about if someone like me working part-time, all the stability and access and privilege that I have, if it's hard for me to rapidly rehouse myself, what does it look like for folks who have any other type of barrier? If they are going through a mental health emergency, if they are now disabled, either chronically or temporarily, if they've just temporarily lost a job, if they don't have access to childcare, what does it look like for for anyone else with any other type of barrier, if it's this difficult for me, and how those barriers then add to this wall that is hard to get over to get you back to secured housing. So just, I think, understanding how we even get to homelessness, where the policy gaps are, having organizations that focus on, you know, narrative shifting, storytelling, getting the stories of those with lived experience, having those at the forefront, having that data available, especially like with the point in time count, everyone home does this, where they have a nice data sheet available and it will tell you what people have given, the information they've given about where they were living before they were experiencing homelessness. Because there's also this very weird theory about people move to California to be homeless. Like they're coming from Michigan because it snows there and they're coming to live 
on the beach in Malibu to be home. Like, no, that doesn't. Why? No. So understanding like where people are coming from, what they've been through, what actually led to them experiencing homelessness, making sure that that data is very much a part of the discussion and also bringing in folks who have lived experience so you can hear from them. Hi, this is what happened to me. And granted, to Melissa's point, folks who are experiencing mental health issues, if they're experiencing substance abuse issues, that is not mean that they are then sentenced to a life of housing insecurity. That doesn't even make sense. And then to an earlier point from where you, what you and Michael were discussing, a lot of times the mental health issues, the substance abuse issues are exacerbated by living on the street. I don't know how you think people can function in, in a healthy mental state on living on the street. Like that, that's not something that is, is sustainable in, in any type of way. And people will tell you who are dealing with substance abuse issues. I started using because, or my, my issue got worse because I am, I'm, I'm unhoused. I use methamphetamines to stay up during the night because I'm worried about, you know, being attacked in, in an encampment or I need to stay up to watch my kids or stay up to watch my stuff. And then I use something during the day to help me go to sleep. And now my cycle is all messed up. So there's stories like that all the time where it's like, okay, obviously just having this person house will stop and will interrupt a whole lot of these issues that they're experiencing. But people don't know that because they're not hearing those stories and that data isn't at the forefront in these conversations. So I think once we can get there, then people will be able to understand this This doesn't represent everyone, but even the folks that it does, that doesn't mean that they don't deserve housing. Love that. That's the best response I've heard from all three of you around this this issue. So thank you for that. And I hope that that gives some um, perspective for the audience. We're getting to the end of our time together, y'all. So I have one last question from the audience that I'd love for folks to comment on. And we are a powerhouse panel of women. Uh, and this question asks, what can be done to target BIPOC LGBTQ and women who have been left out of housing and economic wealth opportunities without people saying it's reverse discrimination. Um, so anybody want to want to take that as we get ready to close out? Yeah, um, I'm happy to share what public health does quite a bit, which is share the data. Um, I, there is is such extreme data to show the disparities particularly around housing and homelessness and racial injustice, that really showing the data makes it, makes it impossible to say it's discrimination. Um, so that's one piece of it. And now I think we know that not everybody is convinced by data. <laughs> um, and so I think also people's stories are so incredibly important. The stories that help um, cut away people's biases um, and really understand um, what people are struggling with and working through um, to make it every day, I think helps too. Kathy or Courtney, yeah. any last words on that question? No, I just believe uh, what Melissa just said. I just agree with what she said. I think she's right on it, right? Other than just um, just treating it the, the same as the same disparities that people of color have, you know, it, just, just, just take care of it all, take all the biases away. Absolutely. Uh, just to reiterate my earlier answer um, when we were talking about 
you know, the background of exclusionary housing, the way out is the way back through. And so addressing the, the root uh, exclusionary policies, discriminatory policies, making sure that we're being intentional about addressing those who have been left out um, of housing opportunities. It's not discriminatory against folks who have gotten the opportunities all along. It's expanding the access to opportunities. Exactly. I think that's the perfect note to end on. I just want to thank you all so much for being a part of this discussion with me today. Uh, thank you again to Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, the United Way and MPH for your support. I also want to thank uh, our speakers, including Michael Tubbs, who joined us earlier. Uh, thank you all so much. I've so enjoyed this conversation and I hope the audience as well um, has benefited from it. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.